Well, we want to invite you to turn in your Bibles now to the book of 1 Corinthians. We have been going through this book chapter by chapter, verse by verse, and we are coming to the end of a section here in chapters 8 through 10. When Paul has been discussing the subject of gray areas, particularly in that context of meat sacrifice to idols and principles guiding us when it comes to areas of controversy, areas that Christians have differences in opinion. And so our text this morning comes from the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 23, and we will be reading through chapter 11, verse 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 23, and we will be reading through chapter 11, verse 1. And as I mentioned, he is ending his discourse on the subject of meat sacrifice to idols and principles that would guide us in determining whether or not to participate in various things that the Scriptures do not specifically address. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 23. It reads, All things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things edify. Let no one seek his own good, but that of his neighbor. Eat anything that is sold in the meat market without asking questions for conscience sake. For the earth is the Lord's and all it contains. If one of the unbelievers invites you and you want to go, eat anything that is set before you without asking questions for conscience' sake. But if anyone says to you, this is meat sacrificed to idols, do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for conscience's sake. I mean, not your own conscience, but the other man's. For why is my freedom judged by another's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I slandered concerning that which I give thanks? Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense either to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I also Please, all men, in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of the many, so that they may be saved. Be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. Let's bow in a word of prayer together before we begin our study once again. Our Father in heaven, we ask once again that you would open the eyes of our heart that we might see great and mighty things which we do not yet know. Fill us with your Spirit. Illumine our minds. Grant to us understanding that we might know you and live lives reflective of your Son. In Jesus' most precious name, amen. In the Chinese culture, Respect for those who are older than you are is regularly taught. It is a high value, a high cultural value. In a traditional Chinese family, if you were to eat a meal, it is very respectful to give the choice portions and the first portions to the oldest at the table. The issue of sacrificial food 
It's not at all foreign either. Culturally, ancestral worship is common in the native religion of China. When you talk about Buddhism and Islam and Christianity, those were imported. And Taoism and Confucianism is more of a philosophy. I was talking with my mother just last week about this particular passage and she explained to me that food sacrificed to ancestors in ancestral worship is an issue that arises in some very traditional Chinese homes. If it were in the spring, for example, on April 5th, there is a festival. They call it Qingming. It is a festival, a grave-sweeping festival. They go to the gravesite of one's ancestors and they bring chicken and pork and cabbage and they have three little cups of wine that they will pour out there and the family will gather together and they will eat a meal. The belief is that they're eating along with that ancestor. Or maybe another special occasion like New Year's and other occasions, they will have special meals in which they will take some of the food and they will offer it at the family altar which is in the home to their deceased ancestor. The food is then sometimes shared with the family or very commonly after a traditional Chinese funeral and many funerals in the culture of that of Chinese there is a reception afterwards a reception in which food is shared among the table and some of it is offered to the deceased ancestor and then served to the people and therein lies the quandary for the Christian for the Christian who eats at such a banquet what does one do Do you eat the food that's been sacrificed, offered to the ancestor, and then served at the tables and the reception? It's a question that has faced my mother. She's been a Christian for a long time and has taught the Bible for many years. And so what she does is she either, A, chooses not to go to the reception, or when she arrives at the reception, she will kindly tell them that she is a Christian. And they will serve her food that has not been offered to the ancestor. She very well knows that the food is fine. She very well knows there's nothing that has changed about that food, about those dishes, simply because it has been offered. But she refrains from eating the food that has been sacrificed to the ancestor. Why? Because she tells me that... She would not want to cause a younger Christian who sees her there at that funeral to stumble. Maybe that younger Christian was formerly into ancestral worship. Maybe that younger Christian doesn't know what it might be. And she wouldn't want to cause them to stumble in their faith. Maybe thinking that some syncretistic melding of the old ancestral worship ways and Christianity can be adopted at the same time. She wouldn't want to cause them to stumble into sin. And that is exactly the same situation that Paul instructs the Corinthians about here. In the past four chapters, in 8, 9, 10, 11, he's been talking about this whole subject in relationship to gray areas. Areas in which Christians disagree. Areas in which Christians may have some semblance of liberty. Areas in which he warns them. Perhaps that you ought to be cautious about not participating in particular things. 
If it might cause a brother to stumble, or if it might be a part of a particular worship, idolatrous worship of that time. And here Paul concludes this whole discourse in this section. He concludes with principles that he has taught, encapsulating all that he has been instructing them of. And I've framed them in six questions, six questions that we are to ask ourselves when we come to any activity in which Christians may disagree, any activity in which Christians may have differences in opinion that might be controversial among Christians, what should we do? And you'll find that these this morning perhaps are very practical to you because Christians will often disagree. Christians will often have differences in opinion. Should we do this activity or should we not? Is it all right to do this? You might find it among you as you raise your teenagers. What's wrong with this, Mom? Why can't I do this? These questions that I pose here come from the text. And we look at the first one in verse 23. And the first question that we ought to ask ourselves is, Is it profitable or edifying? Is it profitable or edifying? The scriptures say all things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things edify. All things are lawful. That phrase that we have heard so many times within the past chapters is a phrase that was a common saying. A saying that they would use, perhaps those who were more liberal, who would say, well, all things are lawful, exalting or flaunting their liberties. Even though an activity, though, might be acceptable in particular cases, may not be profitable, may not be edifying. Profitable here refers to things that are spiritually profitable and edifying. It comes from the word which means to build a house, to build a house. When a builder builds a house, there are things that are good and helpful. But you might find in your home there are things that make you wonder. Why in the world did the builder put that there? I know in my home, in one of the bedrooms, there is, a, there is an electrical outlet. And it is right, right behind the door. And I think to myself, why in the world did one put an electrical outlet right behind the door? When you open the door, it will smash the cord. And you cannot put anything there without getting in the way. And you can't even open the door all the way when it's plugged in. So I never use it. Or on the other side of my house, there's a vent. A vent doesn't go anywhere. I don't know why it's there. And I wonder myself, why in the world did the builder do that? What a waste of money. What a waste of space. Or like this library that we're bidding on. We had an inspector do a full inspection. You know, that type of size of a facility probably requires about, he says, a a couple of electrical panels. About two would be good. Two would be more than adequate. Well, he looked up there and there are seven. It's overpowered, he says. Not that it's bad, but somebody was taken. Maybe our city was. (laughs) Same is true in life. Not everything is profitable. Not everything is edifying. And the things that we engage ourselves in, the time that we spend, the energy that we spend, many things have little or no redeeming value. You know, today... Our society and our culture has more leisure time, it seems, than ever. More time to spend in self-indulgence and maybe even in entertainment. According to a recent study by the Kaiser Family Foundation, kids aged 8 to 18 years 
devote an average of seven hours and 38 minutes per day to entertainment media. That is more than 53 hours a week. Because they spend so much time of that doing what researchers call media multitasking, i.e. listening to music while surfing the internet or whatever it may be, they actually managed to amass a total of 10 hours and 45 minutes worth of media content in those 7 hours and 38 minutes. And we know that entertainment is not in and of itself evil. It is not a sin to be entertained. It is not a sin to enjoy the things that God has given to us. The book of Ecclesiastes tells us that God has built in part of life, the joy of being able to what? Reap the fruits of one's labor, to enjoy life, etc. But even though it may not necessarily be wrong, whether it's movies or games or surfing the internet or sports or whatever it might be, it may not be necessarily fruitful or profitable or edifying. In fact, some of our entertainment today is not edifying at all. It is detrimental to one's spiritual life. It is not a question of fun or enjoyment or whether one makes one feel good. But the question we ask ourselves in particular things is, is it profitable? Is it edifying when we come to questions of controversy that Christians may differ in? Am I doing what is spiritually beneficial? Will it build me up? Or will it be like a, a vent that goes nowhere in the side of my home? Secondly, am I looking out for the good of others? Am I looking out for the good of others? Verse 24, let no one seek his own good but that of his neighbor. Are you looking out for the good of others? When you choose to do a particular activity, more often than not, what do we look out for? We look out for ourselves. We say to ourselves, we are self-centered, or we, we say, do I enjoy this? Do I really like it? How much do I value it? We're naturally selfish, aren't we? From the time we're born to the time we die, we struggle with selfishness, being self-seeking. Think about it. I heard from a pastor who reminded me that when you take, or if you were to take a, let's say our church family photo during our retreat, we put five of them up there, and we say, which one do you like? Who do you look for? You look for you, don't you? And you say, hey, I like this one. Why? Because you look good. It doesn't matter if James over there has his eyes closed and Leanne is looking at him and his baby just threw up on him. You say, oh, good picture. Why? Because you look good. And David there has his hair sticking up and you try and be nice and you say, oh, that's all right, Dave. Your hair sticking up in all the pictures. You have to look out for the good of your neighbor. That's what it says. Don't look out for just yourself. Let no one seek his own good, but that of his neighbor. So is it profitable and edifying? Am I looking out for the good of my neighbor? Thirdly, does it endanger another's conscience? Verse 25 to 30. Does it endanger another's conscience? Here lies the situation. Verse 25. Eat anything that is sold in the meat market without asking questions for conscience sake. Verse 27, if an unbeliever invites you and you want to go, eat anything that is set before you without asking questions for conscience sake. But if anyone says to you, verse 28, this meat is sacrificed to idols, do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for conscience sake. I mean not your own conscience, but the other man's. You see, 
this is the situation. They would take meat that would be sacrificed to an idol. A third of it would go to the priest. A third of it would be given to the family. They would eat it. And a third of it they had excess. After all, even the pagan priests couldn't eat all of that meat. So they sold it in the back butcher shop or at the temple restaurant during the festival. And it would be discounted and it would be good quality meat. And some people would say, what's wrong with eating that? So maybe an unbeliever invites you over, invites you over and says what? Here, come, have a meal with me. And he doesn't say anything. What does Paul say to do? He says, don't ask where it came from. You just eat. But if someone says this meat has been sacrificed to idols, then what? You shouldn't eat. You shouldn't eat, not for your own conscience, but for the conscience of the one who said it, or maybe those who are around it. Now, some commentators will look at this and say, well, it could be the host who knows you're a Christian and he's trying to be sensitive and he knows you have perhaps standards. Maybe he has a stereotype of how you are and Christians, what they should eat and what they don't do or do. And they kindly say, well, this meat has been sacrificed to idols. He says, don't eat. Some believe that that's the individual that is spoken of here. Other commentators see that this person who has said this might be a weaker brother who sits there next to you, who's also been invited. And they say and they point out to you, you know, this, this meat here, it's been sacrificed to idols. And he's wondering what you should do as the more mature Christian. Paul says in either case, don't eat, don't eat. If it's a non-Christian host, you see... They may be mentioning it out of kindness or even a weaker brother. They may be mentioning it because they don't quite know what to do. And Paul says what? Don't change your conviction, but you change your conduct. He's not saying change how you believe about what has happened to that me, but don't do it in that particular instance. Modern day example often is discussed as one that has to do with alcohol consumption of alcohol. Some Christians advocate drinking in order to fit in or be like the crowd, be like the non-Christians in order to win them to the Lord. And as all of you know, there is nothing, quote unquote, necessarily sinful about consuming alcohol. In some contexts, maybe you're in Germany or whatever, and that's all they have. Or maybe you're in a context where the non-Christian host has no problem with consumption of alcohol and maybe you feel in your own heart it's not a concern at all as well and maybe there is no one else there well it might be alright might be alright but in other cases when someone is perhaps in a context in which you don't know you don't know whether or not someone would be caused to stumble just like my mother she doesn't know who all is there going to be at the funeral who might see her eating meat that has been sacrificed to an ancestor it might cause them to stumble so she chooses to refrain in many cases it is a powerful testimony when we are different by the things we abstain from a person's testimony is respected by the non-christian host if it was a weaker brother they tend to respect you when you care for others, not causing them to feel uh, unease. Don't let your freedoms be the cause of slander. Don't flaunt your freedoms in front of others. You can't sincerely give thanks if you know that others take issue with what you're doing. 
You don't have to change your convictions, but you change your conduct. So the question is, does it or will it endanger another's conscience by causing them potentially to stumble, potentially being a hindrance to them? Fourthly, is my motive to glorify God? Verse 31. What is my motive? Is it to glorify God? Verse 31. Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Do all to the glory of God. And this statement sums up the supreme motive by which we are to do all things. Whether it is eating, whether it is drinking, whatever you do. Turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1 reminds us of the purpose by which we were created. The purpose by which He has predestined us. The purpose by which we were called to hope and given the Spirit of God. Ephesians chapter 1. Paul writes to the Ephesian church here. And he says in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 5, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself. According to the kind intention of His will. Why? To the praise of the glory of His grace. Verse 12. To the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of His glory. Verse 14. The Spirit of God who was given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of His glory. The purpose of our creation, our salvation, our predestination, the purpose of our inheritance, of our reception of the Holy Spirit is to the praise of the glory of God. Our salvation is not about us. It's about God. We hear the gospel. It's often, well, God loves you. God has a wonderful plan for your life. And that's true. But it is about God. And sometimes we walk away thinking, you know, it's about my happiness, my contentment. My comfort. Life's about me. About what I can get from God. We can communicate that easily to people. About all of the benefits that we have. And no longer does our lives center around God. It centers around us. We begin thinking to ourselves, you know what? It's about what God can do for me. As if God is some benevolent benefactor up there with a long beard. Who's just going to do whatever you ask Him to do. Scriptures tell us is about the glory of God. It's about living my life in God's center of His will that I might glorify Him. It's about God who is glorified in blessing me. But it's also about God's glory when I suffer. It's also about God's glory, whether it be my unemployment or my health or my cancer or my giftedness. Whatever God chooses to do, He works through His will for our good and for His glory. And God is glorified when I obey God. God is glorified when I trust Him. God is glorified when I confess my sin. God is glorified in my contentment. God is glorified in my sharing of my faith. In all of the things that I do, God is to be glorified. That is life's purpose. That is life's purpose. Life's purpose is not about living for me. It is about living for God. It's about living for God. And when I do... Then comes the joy. Then comes the fulfillment. Then comes really what life is all about. 
and values fall into place and you get up in the morning and you feel my life has a purpose, has a meaning. I, what, live to glorify God, to please God. And as I shared with you many times before, I always pictured when I was a little boy that God has this huge wallet in his pocket, you know, and he has all of these pictures of all of his children and how all of his children, sometimes he shows the angels, look at this one, you know, flips out, goes through the clouds and all that because he has so many. I always wanted to be, I always wanted to be one that God would look at that and show his angels and say, you know what? I'm happy. He makes me proud. He does. Makes me look good. You show off the pictures, right, of your children that you're proud of. That have been those who are faithful. And I would want to be one that God would be happy with, that he would be proud of. We live for the praise of his glory. The word glory means something that is worthy of praise or exaltation, brilliance. Beauty, renown. The first question in the shorter catechism of the Westminster Catechism is, what is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. That's the sole reason. No matter what our calling is in life, whether we are famous or not, we live to glorify God. Many of you know Sean Alexander, who used to be a running back for the Seahawks. He said in an interview, I am a Christian that loves the Lord, that just happens to play football, that happens to get to be on cool TV shows, that happens to get to be on commercials. I chase after God. I play football for the sole reason to give God glory, unquote. Many of you were here when... Professor Paul Felix was here as well, a professor from the Master's Seminary. His daughter is a gold medalist, Allison Felix, and on Wikipedia it gives a profile of her life. She says, quote, My faith is the reason I run. It calms my heart. It makes everything feel like a lift. My speed is definitely a gift from Him, and I run for His glory. Whatever I do, he allows me to do it, unquote. That's rightly stated. When I choose to do what I do, especially in areas that are controversial, I ask myself then, is that because I choose to glorify God by what I do? Or am I doing it because it makes me happy? I want to do it because I'm entertained. Because I have every right to do it. Because I want to save money. Because whatever it is, why? Why do you do what you do? Why do you choose to live like you live? Why do you make the choices that you make? Is it because it's more comfortable for you? Is it because you are more entertained by it? Is it because you think that, well, I have every right to. I don't want to care. I don't really care what others think. Or you choose to do it because it has redeeming value and you want to please God. Fifthly, does it offend others and hinder the gospel? Does it offend others and hinder the gospel? Verse 32. Give no offense either to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. 
just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many, so that they may be saved. Do my actions or activities that I choose in, engaging in, does it offend others or hinder the gospel? The text says to Jews or Greeks or even to the church of God is all-encompassing. Does it offend other people? Does it offend my relatives? Does it offend my friends? Does it offend non-Christians? Are they shocked or surprised that I would do such a thing? The principle is, don't do anything that would offend and hinder the gospel. The truth of the word and the gospel itself is offensive. You tell somebody that they're a sinner or that they need salvation. You tell somebody that they do not control everything. Well, they're offended oftentimes. But if there's anything that is offensive, whether or not it's my right or whether or not it's my freedom to do it, don't do it. And risk offending people and hindering the message of the gospel. There's a difference between the message of the gospel and the messenger. If somebody's offended by the message, well, that's their problem. If someone is offended by the messenger, well, that's my problem. Just as we learned in the last chapter, Paul says in 9.22, To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, so that I may by all means save some. I do all things for the sake of the gospel so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. It's not just in gray areas, but I believe it can apply to many areas of life, being considerate, being sensitive, thoughtful, etc. It's the way to be. We as Christians can easily have the mindset that says, you know what, no, these are my rights. I'm going to do whatever it is that I want to do. I'm not going to bend over for anyone else. I'm not going to kowtow to them. I don't care what people think. That's how I am, and if they don't like it, tough luck. We can easily think that way. We can offend by how we dress, or how we talk, or the manners that we have, or whatever it might be. But if it's in our power to change it, and it would help the message of the gospel be less offensive because of the messenger, then we're to do so. You know, one of the areas that is often inflammatory between people is regards to neighbors, sometimes property lines, property rights. And I think to myself, I was thinking the other day as I was driving away and left my home, looked at my lawn, and it was full of leaves. Why? Well, because my neighbors, whom I really love, and we get along great, and we watch each other's homes when we're out of town and things like that, they happen to have this really big and beautiful maple tree, of which I enjoy in the summertime. But in the fall, because about 80% of the tree happens to lean over to my side, all of my yard is covered in leaves. But the trunk is on their side. In fact, part of the trunk is on my side. In fact, the fence was built around part of the trunk like that. Now, I very well could exert my rights and say, well, because this part is hanging over on my side, they have this imaginary line. And by law, I believe I'm allowed to cut off everything that is on my side if I wanted to. And I could very well take a chainsaw and sever the part of the trunk that is on my side of the yard as well. Well, if I did so, and this 50 to 70 foot high maple tree 
You know what the result would be? It would be a tree, a couple of toothpicks up in the air with a very traumatized tree, not to mention traumatized neighbors. The thinking, though, shouldn't be, well, this is my right. I'm going to exercise them. I don't care how others think or feel. No. We should be considerate and not offend so that it would what? Show deference. Way for the gospel. It may be inconvenient. may not be fair. But what? We do it for the sake of testimony. We do it for the sake of testimony. Many of you perhaps have had the opportunity to travel overseas on mission trips and things like that. And many times you're invited by the people who are there to be a guest in their home. And they put food in front of you. And I've had the opportunity to eat all sorts of things. From grains to grasshoppers to eel and snake and spiders, etc. And then one of the things you learn is you eat whatever they serve you. You eat whatever they serve you. You're a guest. And in some places, in some cultures, in the places where they're at, they decide they're going to kill the goat or kill the goose. And it takes them a whole month to save up for that goat. They only save it for special honored guests and things like that. And you shouldn't go in and say, well, yuck, I don't like duck. (laughs) Don't offend. You might have to eat, like in some places we've been in Africa or India, eat with your hands. And you don't have the opportunity to wash. And even if you do, you don't know if the water is clean or not. And in some cultures, in some countries, you eat and you slurp really loud and you burp on purpose because it's polite. It shows that you really enjoy the food. You cater to whatever it is that you might not be offensive by the little things that you do. And so when it comes to gray areas, areas in which Christians may disagree, will my actions or will my activity hinder the gospel message by causing an offense? Will doing it cause an offense? And many times on these short-term mission trips, you do it so that they will what? Not be offended. So that you'll have the opportunity to speak with them about the things of God. Or be an encouragement and a blessing to them. Lastly, be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. Am I being a good example to others? Am I being a good example to others? The word imitators there in verse 1 of chapter 11 is the word from which we get the word mimic. A mime, one who copies exactly what someone else does. And most people would say, oh, I don't know if I'm such a great example. Look, you don't have to be perfect because people will see your failures. They'll see your successes, but they want to see how you respond to life. They want to see how you respond to both successes and failures, the joys as well as the pain. How you live your life. Do you love God and pursue God? Do you invest your life in things that will matter for eternity? What's your time invested in? How do you conduct yourself in business meetings or social gatherings? Or how do you conduct yourself in your speech or your work ethic? Do you want your children to grow up like you? How is it that you are as an example? Follow my example. Be an imitator of me as I am an imitator of Christ, it says. Our example is we're to follow Christ. Jonathan Edwards was a preacher of the great revival here in America. In his book, Religious Affections, he writes this, quote, 
should always be noted that the more excellent something is, the more likely it will be imitated. There are many false diamonds and rubies, but who goes about making counterfeit pebbles? However, the more excellent things are, the more difficult it is to imitate them in their essential character and intrinsic values, or virtues, I should say. Yet, the more variable the imitations be, the more skill and subtlety will be used in making them an exact imitation. So it is with Christian virtues and graces. The devil and men's own deceitful hearts tend to imitate those things that have the highest value. So no graces are more counterfeited than love and humility. For these are the virtues where the beauty of a true Christian is seen most clearly, unquote. Not only are we to be good examples to follow, but we are to be an imitator of Christ so that others will follow as we are following Christ. We ask ourselves, what would Jesus do? How would he act? What would he decide? And those are good questions. Those are good questions. What would be the attitude of Christ? If Christ were in this situation, what choice would he make? So when you come to an area of Christian liberty, an area of Christian controversy, an area in which Christians may disagree, ask yourself, is it profitable or edifying? Am I looking out for the good of others or am I really seeking my own pleasure? Does it endanger another's conscience? Could it cause somebody else to become hooked on this? Or could it cause someone else to stumble? Fourthly, is my motive really to glorify God? Is that really my motive in what I am choosing to do? Does it offend others or maybe hinder the gospel? Lastly, am I being a good example? Because you never know who might be watching you. There are many areas in which Christians disagree. Many areas in which Christians have differences in opinion. You ask yourself the tough questions and make yourself answer them. Test the motive of your own heart and ask yourself, whether I eat or I drink or whatever I do, do I do it for the glory of God? When you come to questionable things, do I do this? Even in things that are common, eating and drinking, even in non-questionable areas, am I doing it because I choose to live for the glory of God? Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, so often, Lord, we live for ourselves catering to the idols of our own heart, catering to ourselves. And Father, we desire, O Father, to live for You. And I pray, Father, that You would incline our hearts, O God. Incline our hearts to live for things eternal, to live for Your glory, to live in a way that would please You. Grant to us, O God, the strength and the grace that we might be 
blessings to others, conduits of your grace, a testimony, O Father, in such a dark world. In Jesus' name, amen.